You are listening to the Regeneration Rising podcast, a podcast from the Kavira Coalition about the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of agrarians in the United States. Each episode will explore what it means to work in regenerative agriculture, how people came to choose this as their livelihood, and why it's important to them and the future. We hope to build a foundation for a strong community of future agrarians and land stewards with a regenerative approach to community, relationships, and the land. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Taylor Mulia. I'm the new Agrarian Program Colorado Manager here at Kivira Coalition. Today, I'm interviewing Caleb Valdez. He is the owner-operator of Uncompagre Farms in Montrose, Colorado. Today, we talk about creativity and networking and building a business that's based on private leases. Caleb and I also talk about using fire to heal certain landscapes. And we also have a really great conversation about being a young person trying to find that work-life balance, that healthy work-life balance. So uh, I had such a great time talking to Caleb and I hope you enjoy our interview. Caleb, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. Tell us about an average day in the life of you. What's uh, usually your favorite part of the day? Well, I, I uh, think that the average day really depends on the seasons. So like, for instance, right now we are getting irrigation going springtime. So an average day is just changing water every morning and every evening. Uh, we're also still grazing cows and uh, not feeding hay. So we've been moving moving them on say every two days to different paddocks. But one of the things like for sure throughout the seasons is like always checking the cows just for herd health and just seeing how they're doing. And then I think we're always like basically judging the cows too, to see, you know, what mother cows you might want to keep or how certain steers are, are growing. And then summertime is just an average day is hectic. Like summer is the craziest. We'll have four markets this year. So that will be a consistent thing that we do each of uh, those days of the week. And then um, where we graze the cows in the summertime, you know, it could be anywhere from checking fence to chasing cows back in to the fence. And then wintertime, you're looking at feeding mostly. We, we give them a lot larger paddocks, so you're not necessarily moving cows as much. And in the fall, you know, we bring them back down and, and we try to move them a little bit more regularly. The, the grass is slowing down. So again, we don't move them as quickly. It just depends on the seasons. And probably, as you know, like there's no normal regular day. There's just a few activities that like you're always consistently doing which is taking care of the cows and then watering and selling the beef. Do you, yeah, do you have a favorite part of the day? Yeah, I think like for me, the favorite part is when you do move cows and they go into a new paddock and just listening to them graze and watching them graze, like by far is what I enjoy the most. And because we're around them so much, like you can walk through the herd and just see everything and how they're doing. So right now with like the calves, it's especially great because they're so little and yeah, they're just checking you out, pretending to eat grass. It's like, that's my favorite part for sure. Yeah. That sound is, is the best just sitting there and listening and just being, it it gives you sort of a feeling of productivity. Like you're, you're doing some monitoring and (laughs) checking out the animals, but you're also just enjoying it. Yeah. And, and then, you know, before you move them, if you are using hot wire, it's just chaos, you know, like they know there's just like excitement, they're moving, they're freaking out, they see you. 
And as soon as you start moving them, that noise stops. And then it just is like this synchronized grass, like ripping from them. Yeah. You know, pulling yeah. Them. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So let's go back to your sort of your story, your beginnings. You grew up in New Mexico and you had sort of an exposure to ranching. So I guess I would love to hear your story, first of all. And when you were little, did you see yourself ranching? Is that what you wanted to be when you grew up? Yeah, not not really. It was just sort of one of those things where my family uh, would take in horses and they would work train horses. And then my dad and brother worked on some smaller ranches. So it was just sort of like, I guess, what 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 I was exposed to. Um, I definitely enjoyed it. But anybody who's been around horses, it's also like one of those things where you have wrecks, you see things. And so there's, there's always a side of you that was like, Oh man, do I want to do this? Cause it can be a little, it can be a little rowdy, you know, but I did enjoy like working with the cows the most, just whenever we would like process cows, one of the ranches my brother worked on, they would buy a lot of cattle it was more conventional. So they were buying backgrounding them and then eventually selling them. So they would, you know, buy cows from other ranchers, grow them for a little bit. So we would always work those cows and it would just be like long days, you know, where you would, be working. And it didn't really feel like work, even though I was pretty young. And I, I know my brother would like pitch me a little bit of money. So that was always a big deal. But then with like my dad out there, that was a lot more like on horseback and riding and being little, like I sometimes was pretty scared because you're in like decent sized country and no one's around and you're just with a cow while he's trying to find something. And I'm like, is my, is, is he going to come back? So I was like, not all. And then, and then they trained horses. I think parenting now is way different than then where I would be on horses that I'm like, why would they have put me on that horse? So I didn't see myself, but um, I definitely like enjoyed the time. It was fun, but it wasn't like, oh yeah, this is what I want to be. This is what I'm going to do. So. Yeah. Sort of tell us about growing up in New Mexico. Where did you go after high school? Like where did, what was your first interest and sort of how did you end up to where you are in Colorado? Yeah. So I, I was doing 4-H too. I only did like one year there in New Mexico. And then when I went to Colorado, my dad just had a small little place where I would, I continued um, with 4-H. So I'd raise steers, show steers each year. And then um, I rodeoed too. So I had like those small little circuits and you would do the poles and uh, barrels and goat tying and breakaway roping and then uh, rode steers. So I just, I was still like, I guess in the cowboy lifestyle, but not necessarily like agriculture, farming or ranching. I would just have a couple steers and a heifer or something that I raised. And I, I started getting more into sports in, in high school and kind of transitioned to like just playing basketball and stopped showing and rodeoing my last couple of years in high school. After, after that, I just went to school because that was what you're supposed to do. You know, you go get a degree. And I had another brother worked in the Forest Service and bounced around as everybody that is 18 and trying to figure it out and this school, this degree. And so eventually, after many years, finished with forestry and philosophy degree. And while I was in school, I was working for the Forest Service part time. So I always like wanted to be outside. I've always been just in nature. And so, you know, I grew up skiing too and biking. So yeah, that made sense for a career was to get into the Forest Service. I always mainly want to know, like, did people, do you go to school? Did you study this? And it sounds like you sort of did, like you were sort of in the forest service kind of realm. And then, but yeah, that brings me to my next question of like, how did you, you told me before that forest service, you kind of looked at landscapes and you saw like 
and you started learning what cattle can do to landscapes. So how did you transition that from forest management to cattle? Like, where did you learn that? Did somebody bring that up one day or like, how did, how did that come to be? Yeah, there's obviously some overlap where like a lot of grazing out West happens on public lands, you know, Forest Service and BLM. So it was just sort of normal, even in New Mexico and Colorado, where, yeah, there's always cattle out on public lands grazing. Right. And so but I never really thought so much about how they could have a positive impact. It was more like I was a hunter, so I'd be frustrated that there was a bunch of cows. And but it also as I as I worked for the Forest Service, like you would then start to see oh, perhaps this is really overgrazed just based on visually looking at it. But I don't know specifically like how I learned more about regenerative. I think like the first person that really exposed me to it was Greg Judy and on his YouTube. And I would just like listen to all of his episodes that he would put out. And so that like really kind of sent me down um, a rabbit hole where then from there, I like found other people, you know, obviously like Joel Salatin and I listened to a podcast that told me about a guy named uh, Glenn Elzinga, and he ranches in Idaho with Alder Spring. And his podcast, like he worked for the Forest Service too, so he had a similar background, and he eventually transitioned into full-time ranching. So like I got intrigued by his story, and I, would, I did a bunch of research about what they were doing. And then I reached out to, to them and, and wanted to go ride and see what they were doing. So yeah, I just like kind of started with, Honestly, I think probably like Greg Judy and some of his YouTube. And then from there, I just like would immerse myself mostly with uh, podcasts and a little bit of uh, reading, but a ton of podcasts, really. You can do your job and also learn at the same time with podcasts. So I feel like that usually is helpful to me, too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so great to be able to if you're doing something, you know, that doesn't take a lot of concentration and you're just and driving, like, you know, being out West, you drive so much. And so always have something on. So tell us more about your transition into ranching. Did you work part-time for a while or are you working part-time right now? Like how did that transition happen for you? Well, I, I was fighting fire in California. I, I just wanted a break from what I was doing here and uh, went out there and I wanted to buy cows. And so I like, I was just going to save my money to buy some, but it was more like maybe a homestead, not necessarily like, oh, I want to be a rancher and sell beef directly. So I would always joke with people. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to make all this overtime and buy cows, but not like a ranch, you know, in Colorado. And so after I, that was an 18, that was the only way I knew how to make money was to just have a ton of overtime. And so I used that money to just buy some cows and I bought a bull and I would like go look at these bulls that people were selling here, private treaty and stuff. And um, I, I just was like knocking on doors. I didn't even have any property. So I like kind of jumped the gun, honestly. I bought some cows and put them on my dad's small property there and was like, I'll find some land now. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's and, like, not usually how people do that. <laughs> no, no. I was just like, it was a little, it's, it's really funny now looking back on everything. <laughs> even though it wasn't that long ago. But, and then, so I would just drive around here in the Valley in Montrose in the Uncompahgre Valley, like knocking on doors and I'd see just a, a sweet looking field and thought, well, maybe somebody's not leasing it or, or whatever. Maybe somebody just gave up that lease and got a lot of no's. And then eventually I knocked on this guy's door and he said, well, I'm not interested, but my neighbor might be. And so I went over to the neighbors and it was this lady, her name's Frida in her 80s. And she said, 
gave her my spill about how I want to put some cows out there. And she just said, well, give me your name and number, write it down here and I'll get back with you. I, I don't know what I want to do. And so I did that. And about two weeks later, she called me and she was like, you know, I was thinking about it. Like I could use some help out here with the irrigation. Like if you want to put some animals out here and take care of it, like you can do that. And so that's kind of how it started. just like a, a 10 acre piece here. And, and then the guy, the neighbor Leland, who I had just knocked on his door said, well, my son-in-law has a, a small little piece that he needs. And so those were the first two people that like leased me any property. What other sort of supports do you, did you have going into this? Like, did you have somebody, somebody's truck and trailer you could borrow or had you, I know I see a lot of your social media gives a lot of credit to Frida. Like she was, she does a lot for you still. And so can you talk either more about her or any other sort of supports that you had in the community? Yes. So I did have a truck, but it was just a little gas uh, half ton and Frida had a, a horse stock trailer, but it was a bumper pull. So I did use her trailer first early on and then had my small truck. But honestly, like the biggest help was just people giving me opportunity to lease their land. But like my dad and, and some family, you know, helped me out when it came to like putting my cows over there. And then I bought some other cows on Craigslist and we went and picked those up. And then eventually I, I picked up my own trailer because I, I had just met Frida. Like it was kind of hard to use all her stuff right away. We hadn't started that much of a relationship, you know. So I bought it a small little trailer and I love Craigslist, which is kind of a, it's a good thing and a bad thing. Like sometimes you get some really good deals if you are there as soon as it's posted. But then other times I bought stuff that I'm like, why did I do that? You know? I mean, I think it gets to the point when you're starting a farm operation, you like wake up and instead of scrolling through Facebook, you scroll through Craigslist. <laughs> yeah, literally. Yeah. I would like spend, like I bought horses, uh, now a couple stock trailers, and I would spend mornings and evenings like looking at Craigslist. That's what I would do before I go to bed, like for something. Yes. And, and I mean, financially, I eventually like when, when the pandemic happened, I thought everything was going to crash. You know, nobody's working. Things are shut down. And I had already I had bought a house in Montrose and, and had it for three years and had some equity built up. And so I was thinking to myself, like, I want to ranch eventually full time. Like I would like some property. I don't want to necessarily just own a house in town. And so even though I had a little bit of property leased and spent most of my time there, I decided to, to sell my house like in fall of 20, what was it? 2020, 2020. Yeah. And I was like, I just, I literally thought it, my house was going to be worthless, you know, like <laughs> people are not. And so the total opposite happened. And I moved into a camper on one of the properties that I, I ended up getting leased, a super cool property. I asked the landowner before and he was like, oh yeah, you can just pitch a camper. Got a propane, big propane tank. And I, I moved all my stuff out and lived in that camper for that winter. And like Frida and I had developed this relationship and she was wanting to invest in her property. And so she was going to build a home that she said she'd rent back to me eventually. And so I kind of knew like I could rent her house down the road. So it was like a temporary thing. And from being in dorms and working for the Forest Service, like sleeping outside all the time, it seemed like a camper it wouldn't be that big a deal. But of course, construction took longer. So didn't end up moving into this place until a lot longer after they had anticipated. But um I was kind of, I was like, put all my chips in. I was like, I'm all in, whatever. 
<laughs> Let's try it. Yeah. Did you did you have any mentors? Like not everybody does, but do you have any? I've reached out to a lot of people who do similar like grass-fed beef. James Ranch, like I said, Glenn Elzinga. I've even called Jim Garish. Oh, cool. And talked Yeah, like I I just reach out to people. I don't have anybody who I consistently talk to, but I've I've gained like nuggets here and there from all these folks. And then I think like a lot of people in the community here that are not necessarily into regenerative ag, but are in agriculture, like I've developed those relationships with people who custom cut all our hay now, right? So like, oh, nice. And and met some of these farmers and ranchers that now have turned into other leases because they've gotten to know me. But yeah, not like anybody directly that's been a mentor. I mean, again, I think like, honestly, online learning and just it's I always tell people it's a self-led apprenticeship. And so and you're constantly learning, like when you go out there and you see what amount of land you need for 100 cows or 50 cows. First, it was five cows. And you, you look at 10 acres and you're like, I can graze here for all summer, you know, and then you, 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 you so you're just constantly learning. Like if you're attentive and you're watching and you're consistently looking, you'll start to see what is needed to graze X amount of cows. And so now I have more cows than I've ever had. And I'm realizing I need I need this many acres or whatever. And at one time I couldn't have even computed that. You know, I just looked at like Frida's 10 acres and was like, oh, sweet. I can put a bunch of cows out here for a long time. I'm super curious, sort of a theme that I've found, one of your strengths in your business is your ability to socialize. I think now I'm realizing too, another strength of yours is finding resources and just like taking charge of your own learning and finding the answer to things. And so going back to sort of your strengths in socializing and talking to landlords and potential landlords, what's your approach when you knock on someone's door or you start a conversation? And then second of all, what do you do to maintain those relationships? Yeah. I I mean, early on, it was just kind of like, oh, I have a handful of cows and would like to graze them out here and raise beef for myself and some other people. But now that it's an established business, you'll probably find this funny. But on the way over here, I, I was just in Cortez, had to make a quick trip down there there's a, an older ranch there and I saw some people. And so now I'll just pull in and I can actually tell them about my business, you know, like, oh, hey, we, we direct market beef. We're grazing up on the plateau, you know, and right now I'm looking more for like winter ground. So I could say like, hey, we're set for summer, but in the winter time, blah, blah, blah. And so I find it gives me a lot of confidence because generally you're speaking to somebody who's much older than I am and they are super excited that somebody's into what they're into right because like that's their life that's what they do and so even if they can't like this this gentleman was like oh it's leased out but i ended up speaking with him for much longer and anticipated just about ranching or just about whatever you know and so what i find super valuable is i get a contact and i leave a number and you never know what's going to come of that you know like whoever's leasing their land may end up getting out of the business or who knows and so that's been my approach because I've I've gotten calls from somebody that I was talking to about, you know, maybe leasing their land or this farmer who's cutting my hay. And now all of a sudden they're like, hey, Caleb, there's so-and-so is interested in leasing it. And not all of them work out like they may want to lease it to you, but for whatever reason, you're not able to. But I think it's a lot easier now that you have a business, have a, a website, and, and I can tell people what's going on. Early on, I think it was more people just like, oh, well, this 
it, it's labor, I guess, like, hey, this guy wants to take care of my 10 acres or five acres and they'll irrigate it and pay me to graze the cows. Like early on, I was always paying more than I think I should now that I'm looking back on the labor, like I'll pay you to graze these cows and I'll pay you to lease their land and I'll do all the work. And so now that it's, you know, actual business, I'm looking for better deals where, you know, perhaps they pay me to take care of the land and I get a graze. Again, I think like what you said earlier, like just taking charge, just trying it because you'll learn real quick, like, oh, this was not a good deal. (laughs) (laughs) I, I have so much respect for that. And it's so scary going into that. And I think a lot of young people do undervalue their labor. You know, there is a point where you're like, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing. So I don't necessarily think I should be asking to be paid if I'm still in a really like steep learning curve. But once you do get the hang of it and you have your brand and you have a reputation, sort of how did you... Um, get to the point where like, how do you talk numbers with people and flip that dynamic of like, hey, maybe you pay me. That seems really scary to me. But how did that happen? Well, first, a lot of people I would approach like if we make improvements, which came from Greg Judy, he would talk a lot about like, hey, if you make some improvements on the land, then perhaps like you get a graze or you get the hay. And so that's what I would like first fixate on because some of the property wasn't that great. Some of it had to do with fire where it was just some old growth and I didn't have enough cows to really trample that down. So the quickest way to clean it up was to like start it on fire. And when people see you burn 80 acres and that was a bunch of old vegetation that they would not want to touch. And now all of a sudden green growth is coming up and you're watering it. You know, they, they're like, oh, sweet. You're like improving it. You know, it looked terrible before. And so like this new deal we have, you know, it's only 30 acres, but it's basically, it's a subdivision. It's six homes and these people don't have livestock and it's a big lawn for them that makes up these 30 acres. And so most of the people are the age that they don't want to be out there dealing with it. And so a friend of mine, a farmer here was going to do the deal and couldn't, and then said, Hey, I know somebody else who will. So you go out there, you look at it and they want to pay you to irrigate it and then say, just get the hay off of here. Like, we don't care about the hay because we don't even have livestock. So, and I found that through some other leasees that tried to sell their own hay. And, you know, the joke is with like people that are horse people, very touchy with the hay. And so they kind of got burnt and were like, I don't want to deal with trying to sell hay. Like people try and get refunds. And so, and then the manual labor of just like, if, especially if you're doing two strand bales, like being able to pick all the hay out of the field, you know, they can't do it and they can't find help. So that's where they're also like, if you just get the hay off of here, like we'd be greatly appreciative. And I think that benefits your relationship with your landlord. Like it only gets better and better if you show those improvements. Do you have a way of of tracking those improvements? Like, do you take photos? Do you do any monitoring? Is like, touchy for people because it's a lot of work and it it's hard sometimes people just can't keep up with it i know i struggle with that but do you do anything like informal like photography or anything like that to track progress i'll take pictures of like what it looked like prior and then take some, i'm not like really great at like this is our spot this is what we're going to take picture of blah, blah but like for instance one one landowner we were talking about fertilizing and I was like, well, let's just try to graze it. Let's intensely graze it. And when people start seeing you move cows like pretty regularly, they don't normally see that, you know? And so they're just dumbfounded that they're like, how are you going to graze this? I have no fences. And then you go out there 
you put up fence and when you've done it a ton, you can do a lot quickly. And then you put animals in and they stay in most of the time. Um, They're pretty impressed. Right. And so like this landowner started seeing grass on just a small section, but hadn't really seen that before on that part of their field, you know? And so that was just like, Oh, there is like a different, another way. And then with the cow pies, like sometimes I don't even really drag the fields. And if they're healthy enough, we have enough water like those. Cause they'll be like, well, aren't you going to spread the manure? And I'm like, well, let's just see if it decomposes on its own. And usually it will. I mean, there's sometimes you'll get some patties and bales, but they, they just start to see somebody doing something a little differently and they think it's going to look this way and it, and it's not. And so, and that, that happens with like owners that are present because I have some absentee landowners, you know, that aren't too worried about it and they just entrust you. But yeah, I should do better. I don't do any monitoring like clippings and trying to see our forage, but also like we can see our cuttings and and know how how many tons per acre we had before. Are most of the parcels of land in pretty good shape when you get there or because I've known there's another guy in kind of our neck of the woods doing a similar thing to you and he had to kind of start with some pretty shabby looking pastures a lot of weeds a lot of noxious weeds do you ever say no to leases like do you ever find like ooh, I'm gonna have to mow that more so and then I'll be sort of wasting time on a tractor and with a brush hog instead of actually moving cattle yeah, I, I have just started saying no. I heard somebody talk about like when with business early on, like you sort of say yes to everything. And once you can afford to say no is when you do. And so I finally like this is the first year where I've said no to some new opportunities, some leases, mostly because I find like if you don't live up to what you say you're going to do, like that's more hurtful. And so if I can't really commit and do it, what I think is going to be a great job to, to do an improvement, then it's just best that I don't commit to that, you know, or leases that I had, like for instance, those 80 acres that we burned, you know, 40 of them got sold. And then that is now being developed. And then the other 40, I just decided not to continue with it because it, it would take a lot to get it to where it would need to be. And, and since I got better leases that were already, you know, in high production, better water, I just didn't renew a lease. So talk more about the that experiment with the fire. You were in Wildland Fire, so you have a lot of resources and help. And But tell me all about, like, how did you set it up? Did you have to get a special permit to do that? What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, it's, all, it's all another joke about, like, ranchers and firefighters that, like, the over confidence of dealing with fire but so i i just would i asked people that worked with me <laughs> the forest service they're also in fire on their off days to come out and burn so the 80 acres that we did burn we felt extremely confident about based off of our uh, our roads on both sides we had one area that we didn't we were like nervous not nervous but like that's what we have to worry about and so we had like pumps water out there And so I think like with wildland, like you see some pretty intense stuff like that most people don't get to see. And so when you're looking at like these burns, I think to the average person are, you know, people who aren't involved in fire, it is pretty intimidating. And it is very intimidating for me because I'm the one starting the fire, which is wildland, like you, you're just putting it out. And sometimes you're like, well, we're not going to put this one out. So we're going to move another five miles to maybe catch it there. But you see things that are like really intense. 
And so I did sort of, I think, bite off more than, than I should have. <laughs> um, and, you know, one of the burns, the 80 acres went really good other than some loss gated pipe that was my own fault. But um, another burn we did last year in some cattails, it got pretty intense and neighbors had called the fire department because they were just like, this is obviously out of control. <laughs> These fire trucks roll in and um, we were like, we were basically maintaining it. We weren't going to be calling them, but I honestly, I wasn't sad that they showed up. I was like, that's cool. And it was funny because one of the captains, I, I knew him. And so they weren't upset and they were actually kind of happy. They were like, oh, it's a slow day. There's not much going on. So, but I was like super nervous after we finally, like everything's controlled. The landowner comes down there and he's, he's like, we we're joking before we got on about some of these stoic guys. And uh, I don't know, I started talking about how it was going. And he said, well, I think the fire department was bored today. And so like he had full, full confidence, which really made me feel good. Cause I was like, I think he might lay into me. Like, what are you, you you're trying to do this, blah, blah, blah. But no, he, he was really cool about it. And so we actually just burnt his like a couple of weeks ago, that same area. And it's way different now. We have less, it was cattails that we were trying to reduce because it was an old fish hatchery. There was a bunch of ponds and of those ponds they hadn't maintained the previous owner so some were spilling over and creating a, a bunch of swamps that they didn't want so this new landowner was like if you can help me improve it so that's what we've done we we rented a mini x and my uh, cousin does the work and uh we've got that water to get back to the river and stopped it from flooding and then i put bulls in there this winter and so they really like beat it down and um so then we didn't have as much fuel when we did light it on fire and that's that I kind of jumped the gun when I did light it, like no animals had been in there. It was just like thick and it, it went real fast, but this year, yeah, it was a lot easier. They were, they're stoked. Like they, they can visibly see more grass and more open area. Whereas before it was just like a, a jungle in there, you know, and I walked with them. And so I think that's one of the biggest things. If you have a landowner who actually cares about their property and they see it, and they walk through it. And then the next year they're like, oh, we can, I can see you in front of me as we're walking opposed to before, you know, so thick in here. You know, you have connections and a familiarity with fire. If anybody else, any landowner sort of wants to go about starting a fire on their property for ecological benefit, what do they do? Like who do they contact and how do they get a crew and make sure it's all safe? There are some private wildland fires that like, for instance, the federal government will contract engines specifically and crews. And so there are some people that will like burn for you that you can pay. The biggest thing is you have to notify the county if you're doing a small scale. So if it's a larger burn, there are like state programs in RCS as well that will go look at this project and see if they can accommodate that burn for whether it's habitat improvement, which typically is like what they're looking for. A big portion of it is for mule deer. So sometimes we have too thick of an area and um, they want to reduce those fuels. Or it could be like you're up against public land. And so that could be beneficial to public land if if that was provided, just not such a fire danger. But yeah, there's, uh, I think it's Western Fire Council in our area. They're a private entity that will kind of be that liaison between whether the state or the federal government and private landowners. And they actually have funds that they can do a cost share with you on burning. So, but that's like a little bit bigger. Like what we were doing is kind of more of a, 
a county, like you got to just inform them what you're doing just so that way they know where you're at. And if you need help, you can call them right away and they can respond. Are there any other things that you are excited about learning from how fire affects grasslands? Is there anything else that you're sort of curious about learning? I would prefer that we use the animals to break down that vegetation and put it into the ground instead of burning it and it be put up into the air. So it's, I think that's my preference, but there's, there's tools for different circumstances. And like this year, I just reburnt those cattails, but I'm not burning any of the fields because we use the animals to put that back into the ground. So I, I think like with fire, you're really trying to create plant spacing and change the density where you may not want it. But in like our fields, for instance, we're grazing, like we want as much plant density as possible. Whereas like in forests where the federal government will do prescribed burns, it's because there's too many trees and that's not beneficial for the forest. And so when you do burn, you can create some more spacing that's beneficial for those trees. Whereas with the grass, like we want as much grass and as, as much density as possible. I just think it, it's one way, like these old feral fields that there's a ton of veg, you know, maybe just nuke it off and then start over. But if you had the cows, like if I had enough cows, I could easily maybe feed hay out there and they would trample it down and you would cover it. Because like with the fire, once you burn that, you know, it's not protected anymore. And so it's not shaded. So I, I, I don't know that I'm necessarily like, oh, I need to burn all the time. It, there's just certain specific things. And really what the cattails came from a, an RCS article where they did this with burning some cattails and then they put cows in there afterwards to eat it down. And so that's what we're waiting for right now is for these cattails to start growing back and then we'll move the cows in there and we're going to be feeding hay to them even this late in the year to hopefully get some more reseeding. Tell me more about the other end of your business, which is the meat side of things. You've built a brand and I've sort of heard whispers about like music festival, like, and going, you know, doing a lot of more social events and getting your product out there. Can you talk more about your business? Once I started getting beef, I would just direct market to people like whole or quarter carcasses. And most of those people that bought that were like neighbors that saw us out there moving cows and working with them. And so that kind of gave me the confidence to be like, oh, maybe we could do a market. And so um, a big credit to Brittany Duffy. I worked with her at the Forest Service and she was the one who really pushed me to go to the farmer's markets and was like, hey, if I help you and, and sign up for them, would you do it? And so reluctantly I did. And that was last summer. And we signed up for Montrose and Ridgeway and Mountain Village. And so once we signed up, it was like pretty nerve wracking because you're like, will anybody buy this? You know, you don't know. Or will it, how will they like it? And so, but once we started selling beef, people started enjoying it. It just gave you the confidence. And so there I was like, well, now we need to try to, you know, find some more beef. Like if we can just raise more numbers. And so this year we're going to have four markets. Then I would just reach out to like other people for moving the burger. The other idea we had last summer in the market was you start to accumulate a lot of ground. And there's a baker who does like she always has this huge line. So we're like, what if we get her to make the buns? And then there was another guy who had goat cheese. We'll get his goat cheese, our beef, and we'll just cook some sliders. So not any big burger, 
We're not going to deal with like tomatoes, onions, pickles. Like it's just a slider with goat cheese as a sampler, basically. And it was like huge success. Like people just loved it. And so that got us thinking like, oh man, if we can do that this summer at multiple markets, you know, we can move a lot more ground beef. And so, yeah, that's been really awesome. We, we collaborated with a restaurant here where they put on a Valentine's dinner and they cooked up some steaks and paired that with another distillery in town. We're not necessarily making a lot of money at those events, but it's a way to expose yourself, get involved in the community. And then a Wayfinder Magazine's one here in town that liked our sliders and they got a booth together at the Telluride Wine and Food Festival. Yeah, we went to that last fall and we were such a hit because there was like two food vendors. So everybody's drinking wine. And then we we literally had like the longest line. And so I did get one, this lady, she said, she was like, the best part of this whole wine festival was these sliders. Oh my gosh. I like, I that is amazing. It. Yeah. I was yeah. like, can you say that for the camera? And, and, <laughs> yeah. and this person wasn't hammered. So I truly believe her, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say like the Telluride Police Department should be sponsoring your burger venture yeah. um, to lessen the, yeah, <laughs> the it chaos. It goes back to like the land leasing where you're like, now... Telluride Wine Fest, I'm like, we're providing a very great service and product. Like, because we were giving them away. It wasn't, we weren't selling them because people pay ridiculous amount to go to the wine festival. So it's like, I paid all this money and I'm going to have to buy a slider. But this year, um, we're going to try to see if we can somehow get paid. But we did sell uh, a whole beef to a guy that ate a slider and was like, I'm going to buy a beef from you. So it was, it was still worth it. But yeah, that, that, the beef side of it is, uh, Definitely a challenge. And like you said, the music festival. So I, I got this idea just based off of Yeti, where they do Yeti Presents and they will just pick interesting characters. They do music. They do these little short films. And it's like, not to dog on their product. I think it's a great product, but it's just the cooler. And so I'm like, I always tell people we're part of basically solar energy. Like we're in a renewable business where we're capturing solar energy through through the ruminants and providing a quality protein that is benefiting the environment while being totally sustainable. And so why don't we like try to tell people that story? And, and sometimes it's, it is through some social media, but if you have music and you can bring some vendors together that sell their products, sell their produce, whatever um, we are talking about, like having some sheep demonstration with working dogs And really, music might bring people together, but when they're captured by that, there's other opportunities to learn about, like, what people are doing out in the agriculture. And so that's kind of like the idea. We've, like, now been throwing around an ag film fest, too, to where we could get people to do short films on people in our valley or in our state and then just tell the story of some producers in whatever light they want. And so I think there's definitely room for that because in the wintertime, you know, there's not a whole lot going on. So if we could put put on a little ag, like I grew up skiing and biking, going to Telluride Mountain Film, like it's super cool. I like it. But sometimes now I can only watch so many people that huck this huge cliff that I'll be, you know, like, like. I mean, it's cool. I ride bikes and it's fun to go super fast. But like a lot of this doesn't really relate to most people watching it. I had the same thought. Like you can only watch so much of this incredibly talented athlete. You know, like at some point you're like, this doesn't, I can't, I'm never going to do that. Like cool for that person. They're like 
flying out of a helicopter and skiing. But like, I think you're so right. Like something that's real local too. like, hey, that mountain, we live there. That's so cool. This is happening. Yeah, totally. And it's like, you have to eat food. Like you don't have to ski. You don't have to bike. And and it's still a cool thing that I think people can relate to and you can and you can tell these people's stories and history and heritage. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm not a filmmaker, but I know there's a lot of talented people out there right now. And there's a lot of consumers now that are interested in the story behind their food. Yeah. And tell me too, you know, you guys live in a pretty touristy Telluride's like ultimate tourist destination. How do you sell beef? to tourists because we have the same, I mean, it's, it's a lot in Colorado. The farmer's markets tend to be a tourist destination themselves and people go around and they buy soaps and candles to put in their suitcases, but you're trying to sell a quarter beef and you're, no one's going to buy your quarter beef, you know? So have, how have you pivoted? Well, there are plenty of people that cook at home for one meal or something. And so they want to have a nice steak dinner. We have like sold plenty of usually it's steaks or like some burger if they want to make burgers and they just cook it in their condo. You know, like surprisingly, there's been enough tourists like we sold some here in Montrose this past weekend to a couple tourists that were going by that just are planning on cooking wherever they're staying. We've had people that cooking over the fire, you know, and so I've actually like. I was skeptical, for instance, the Mountain Village one, because that's more of a touristy than the town of Telluride. And we were pleasantly surprised with how many tourists bought beef as well as locals. But uh, another like weird thing that happened, and this was only a couple people <laughs> in these touristy places, like there's personal chefs that are flown in. Gosh, I forgot that it's that level of wealth. <laughs> we literally had somebody... Uh, flown in for a week to cook for this family at their house. And so whatever they want to cook, they're going to eat. And so he bought all the tomahawks that we had and all the, you know, rib like the biggest cuts, most expensive cuts. And it was like, yeah, I'm going to cook this for them. You know, they'll love it. And so like that, it's just, it's just like, this is what I've just learned is like, you just show up and you never know what is going to transpire, you know? And I don't feel bad about charging what we charge because it was really hard for me to do that because you're like this, I can't pay this. I would never pay this for food. But you realize like if I want to do something that is valuable, I have to be profitable. And the people that can afford this, I guarantee it's not, it's not hurting them. Like they're not going to buy a tomahawk steak and save for that. They're going to buy a tomahawk steak because they want it. Like has nothing to do with like, well, I've been, you know, waiting for the past month to pay this for this steak. It's like, no, I just saw it. And now I want that. <laughs> right. And yeah, we were, I had another podcast guest that um, he helps farmers develop their business plans. And we were talking about uh, off farm jobs. And my thoughts after the podcast is I was thinking something I forgot to mention was like, if you drive down, you're past the point of profit. So under, so you're actually, you're paying to feed people. Um, and you just don't know, maybe, maybe you haven't run the numbers, but you are not profiting. You're really, you're really not doing any favors for the industry as a whole. I find that with eggs a lot. Like we have mm. so many people who just have backyard chickens and they don't need to make money on their backyard chickens, but they sell them for $3 a dozen and you're over there selling them for eight and it's just not helpful for the for the entire community that's trying really hard. So same thing with beef. Like you might have another producer in the same valley or valley over. That's you're not really helping bolster that and 
continuing that conversation, you're giving the customers sort of a way out and be like, that guy's, you know, charges $5 a pound where yours is 10, you know? Right. Yeah. That's a great point. But yeah, I've talked to other producers that are other markets and like, been like, yeah, we need to, we need to have very similar prices. Um, we do. Mm-hmm. It's beneficial to us. And I think, I think you make a great point. And if we can just like work that and it, I think for some of us getting into it, it's really hard to charge that. I still like God, I know. cringe when I, <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm like, oh, I, somehow I think that they are thinking exactly like I am. They're not. And they're not. No. Yeah. Know? I have several customers who are like, nope, we'll pay whatever it costs to make this product. Like you're, you're, you know, busting your butt and you're doing it right. And we want to pay for that. So it's like finding those customers and, and letting go of that guilt because listen, it's hard. And if you're just going to charge a less, a lower price and run yourself out of business, then you're not going to be doing the good work that you're doing. So this brings me to one of my last questions. You, I, you have so much energy. First of all, I don't know how you do it all. <laughs> you like run their meat business, <laughs> farmers markets and uh, talking to people, leasing land, running irrigation here, running down the street there. What do you do for yourself? How do you take care of yourself and slow down, especially in the summer what are your hobbies? What is your sort of self-care? How do you like, calm your mind and take care of your own self? Well, I did recently just buy a new bed that I've never bought in my life. And I was stoked about it. And I spent like a lot of time in mattress stores laying on them. So <laughs> I did do that. But I, I, I play basketball every winter in a rec league. And that's just like something consistently do. I don't know. I left the Forest Service and I, I ended up meeting other young people outside of that realm that do other things like musicians and just other young people that are passionate about whatever they're doing. And so I've, I've recently like had a really tight knit group of friends that we get together and that's like been super energizing to me because they're passionate about whatever they're doing. And so I've really fed off of that, but it was, it was, we were all doing the same thing, having the same complaints. And so that energy kind of like was always there if you did go get a beer or something, you know, whereas now I'm talking to a lot of people that are moving here that are stoked on whatever they're doing. And so that's been like beneficial. But I I think like it's also seasons of life. Whereas for a while it was, you know, if you're in school, for instance, like college, there's times where you just really grind and you're fixated on that test or that paper and, and you don't socialize. And then there's other times where it's, you're able to, and you are hanging out with people. And so I feel like the business right now, it, it's very young and it's new. And so my energy and, and focus is on that. So I, I'm not like thinking about the last two years, I haven't even skied one day where I'm like, oh man, I'm not skiing or I don't ride my bike that much. I'm not like, oh, I need to go ride my bike. Like right now, I'm just, I'm like about to take the test, you know, like I'm working on this paper, like I'm just fixated on that. And so I don't really feel like I'm missing out. I know that's not sustainable. I know like that's not what I'm going to be doing forever. Right now, it's just like that's the season that I'm in. And that's what I'm like focused on. That's what I'm trying to build. But honestly, I mean, there's days where I'm just like totally lazy and like don't do much of anything. I think that is like something that you have to train yourself because like the way I grew up, basically being lazy was a cardinal sin. And so that's where I'm like, I have to work on myself to be like, it's okay to do nothing today. Or there's some days you like, you can't really never do nothing, but you're not going to do anything above that. What has to get done, like a feeding 
chemicals or changing the water or whatever it is, you know. But yeah, so I think right now I'm just in that season of building a business. But I do have that outlet in the wintertime where it is much slower. We're just feeding the cows. The days are short and you're like, man, I don't know that I'm really doing a whole lot. But I, I know that like the storm has come in, like the summer is pretty hectic in spring. I think that is kind of how how it goes is a lot of people push, push, push all spring, summer, fall, and then in, in the winter. I think it teaches a lot of this balance between self-discipline and self-care. Like there is a balance there. It should, and with farming and ranching, I think there's a lot of talk about self-care right now. And you're just juggling that and trying to find like, okay, what there's the things that actually do need to get done. Like there is actually like push time. I have to get this done right now. Um, and then, but yeah, do you find yourself like, I don't know, sometimes when I was irrigating, I used to just like take off my boots and stick my feet in the ditch and just be for like five minutes and then go back to it. Or, you know, at the end of the day, when sun's going down, you're moving cows, just like listening and just enjoying that sunset. Do you find yourself doing that? Oh, yeah. I think like what I was mentioning earlier with the cows and you move them, there's been many a times that I just like lay down there and mm-hmm. uh, just look up and you're in a field, the cows are grazing. And it's it's incredible. Like it's, 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 it's like if I was skiing or biking, you know, I'm not getting the fast pace, but I'm outside. I'm enjoying it. It's a different form of recreation. In the summer, when we're up on the plateau, we lease a big property up there. And last summer was the first time and we we were moving them a lot with horses and so by the end of the day say if we did hot wire them in for the night you ride back and you're just like you know you're on a horse like you're riding in in a sunset yeah it's (laughs) like i you get these rewards i mean that's what people like think your life is always like that's just like a small percentage but that is like what people go and do on vacation and so they are like working an office job and grinding super hard and then they are on the weekends trying to forget about all that. And then they go back to it. Whereas like, I don't ever really like dread the weekdays. It's like every day is, every day is kind of the same, you know, it's not like, Oh, today's the start of my week. It's like <laughs> always something to do, but I don't, I don't like wake up dreading it, you know? And so those rewards come like you might've worked all day, but then you come back to the cabin, you unsile your horse, you cook some food and you look out at the sunset and you're like, this is pretty sweet, you know, and that is the, the resting nest that even though it was a 12 hour day or something, you're still getting to do something that a very small percentage of people get the opportunity to do. Right. And allowing yourself to feel that joy to like, you know, and, and look out, out of your pasture and not like look at the weeds over there that you need to mow or look at uh, some fencing to fix. So just, just look at it and take it in. Other people don't get this part and but you don't get some of the benefits of their salary or their you know health insurance benefits and all this like stability but you have that and you need to take that when you have it right yeah i joke about the land we lease you know it's a big 2200 acres up there a big nice ranch and we are the ones who occupy it way more than the people that own it you know and so i don't that's not in my name but i enjoy it and know it better then they will know it and enjoy it because they're they're all working, you know, and they get two weeks out of the year to be up there. And they're calling me living vicariously like, what's the snow level at? You know, do you see any deer today? Do you see any elk? And so I don't own it, but I get to experience it. And that's kind of where I'm like, this is pretty sweet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My last question is what excites you about the future? 
Well, I think the consumer is going to be the millennials here soon where they'll be like, they're already a big consumer. And one, one thing I heard somebody say is like, some people enjoy the sizzle more than the steak. And so they enjoy the story more. And so we have like a group of people that are going to be the ones I like feel like old now because like my generation are the ones that are buying the food, you know? And so they care more about the story. They understand that things don't need to be the same. And that my example is like coffee and beer. It wasn't that long ago where like all the beer was the same, all the coffee was the same. And now people like think that would be, that's ridiculous. Like, Everybody's into craft beer, their local brewery, this type of roast. And so it's only a matter of time where beef is the same way. It's like, this is a craft beef. Like beef should taste different here than it does in the Southeast or Pacific Northwest. But for so long, the previous consumer was like, they wanted a steak to taste the same, look the same. The consistency is what's preached. And now we have a consumer group who's like, I don't care about the steak. I care about the sizzle, like the story. And they expect things to be different. And then the other thing that excites me is that there is a generation that has to physically like pass it over to to people like us who, um, if you want to do it, like they need someone to, to, to take care of their land for them. And so I just like a passing of the torch and there's not as many people into it. I think, I mean, maybe there are more, I think in the ranching community, it's, it's a little different than like people on some smaller farms. It seems like there's a lot of young people doing that. And I think that's great. And I'm excited about like just some of these potential leases down the road as I build my business, you know? And so like right now I, I, for so long, it was like how to get more property. And now it's like how to make the properties I have better and, and prepare myself for when the neighbors are turning over that land that they say, well, the most logical person would be you because you're our neighbor and you're doing a great job. And so it's more about like building what I have. Like I'm super fortunate with all the people have helped me and to say like, let's improve this. And with that will be opportunities down the road, you know, because these people aren't going to, this generation can't keep taking care of it physically, you know, they have to give it up. So yeah, I think that's my most, excited about and I just can't picture doing anything else like it it finally feels good throughout your 20s and early 30s you're like oh what am I gonna do what am I gonna do I go to this school this person blah blah blah. and now it's like I know what I want to do how do I do it better how do I how do I enjoy it more it's not so much of like is this what I want to do and so that's also like exciting because I feel like I finally arrived to like this is what I want to do the first point that you brought up about about beef and like, it kind of strikes me as it's almost like Italy, how there's different regions, or it's almost like Palisade, like in the wine and the peaches, right? Like we do it already. We do it with different parts of the state. And it's, I think one thing that Italy does really well is like, really like punch us hard on like, this is our thing. And if you are in Parma, like this is this cheese or this is the, this is the meat. And then you go over here and this is our thing. That's what Colorado has. Like we have, we have beef, <laughs> like water's not getting more and more abundant. So that is ultimately the easiest thing we're going to be able to grow here. It's like that this is what it's going to be. So we better embrace it and, and find a way to market it. Absolutely. Well said. And and that's one of the things we tell people when, when they ask about like, if they're more concerned with environmental impacts is the beef side. 
is like these landscapes that we graze are not suited for anything other than ruminants, you know? And so how do we improve that? How do we make it better to where we don't have, like that's other things that I'm excited about is when we improve our soils, then we can use less water when we're irrigating or when we improve the rangeland up there, you know, every rain actually makes a big difference because we have soil covered. We have like more plant density We're we're building it up. And it's just, it is a long process. Like in this, this type of business, there's just no shortcuts, you know? And so it's like, what else, what other option do we have? And I once heard somebody say, we don't have any other option other than like raising our food yeah. this way. That's <laughs> you know? so, so true. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, well, I'm not trying to feed the world, but what I can do is like feed my community and be a resilient business because of the landscape, not because we're really great at marketing or the beef is the best quality. It's like if we have a resilient land, then those other things will follow. And it, it also strikes me that your relationships are pretty resilient too. You know, even if you do lo- lose one lease over here, those relationships will pick you up like you have a safety net. And if you don't now, you, you certainly will in a couple of years. People will see more and more what you're doing and and that creates resilience. And like people are going to want that. So, well, Caleb, thank you so much. You Seriously, it was such a pleasure to talk to you and to get to know you better. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and I wish you well with this season. Thank you. Take care. so much for tuning in and thank you so much to Caleb for being interviewed today. If you'd like to find more about his operation, you can go to uncofarms.com, U-N-C-O farms.com. And if you'd like to find him on Instagram, you can find him at uncompagre underscore farms. And if you're not from Southwestern Colorado, that is spelled U-N-C-O-M-P-A-H-G-R-E underscore farms. If you're looking for new ways to get involved in regenerative agriculture, I highly recommend the New Agrarian Program newsletter. This month, we have a couple of postings that are a really amazing ranch hand positions. This month, we're featuring one from Watrous Valley Ranch in northern New Mexico. We also have another position at Off Family Ranch in Del Norte, Colorado. There's also a couple interesting openings at University of Maine in some of their experimental stations and experimental farms and a couple other coordinator positions. So if you'd like to find more information about all of these opportunities, you should go to our website. It's kiviracoalition.org. That's Q-U-I-V-I-R-A coalition.org. And you can also find a copy of all of our previous newsletters at kiviracoalition.org slash newagrarian slash resources. And if you ever have a job opportunity to share with us that you'd like to be broadcast on our podcast and in our newsletter, you can always send it to newagrarian at kiviracoalition.org. Thank you for listening to Regeneration Rising, a podcast production of the Kivira Coalition. We'd like to thank our guests for taking the time to talk with us about their experiences. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and other popular podcast platforms. Become a Patreon supporter by visiting kaviracoalition.org slash podcasts. We'd also like to thank Kavira staff members, Leah Ritchie, Taryn Dixon, Taylor Mulia, 
Lynn Litvak, and Caroline Caldwell for their contributions to producing this podcast. This episode was edited and engineered by Caleb Wenzel Fisher. Wanderlust, our theme music, was made by Scott Buckley. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the land.